The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. James chapter 4, if you'll turn there, please. James chapter 4. Let me read this chapter to you, please. It's short. It's only 17 verses. And and, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, they have the same mother, a different father, but uh, James has come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And now he is writing this letter to believers who had been scattered from Jerusalem because of their fear of persecution and what was going on. And so he's writing to them to encourage them. We saw how he talked about the purpose of trials in the believer's life, and they were going through many trials. And he was explaining to them the purpose and what God was going to do through those trials. Today we're in a section. Last week we were looking at chapter 3 where it talked about the tongue and how the tongue is either an instrument of the Holy Spirit or a weapon of Satan. And now in chapter 4 he's going to talk about believers at war with each other. I actually got this title from a, an address that a man made who was uh, one of the leaders of the co-mission, which is a group that some years back sent, in fact, they sent 200 different ministry groups to Russia to share the gospel. 200 ministry groups, imagine that, ministry teams that went to, to Russia to share the gospel with, with Russians at that time. It was several years ago, probably 20 years ago when this happened. And... Uh, he gave this address to, primarily to the mission itself, to the people on these ministry teams. And uh, basically what he said, the title of the talk was, The Harvest is Plentiful, But the Laborers Are Arguing. They're at each other's throats. I once went to a missions conference many years ago back in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, one of their workshops was a Conflict Resolution. And it was the most popular of the workshops. There were more missionaries who felt they needed that than all the other workshops they were putting on. And what we came to find, come to find out was they all experienced this, that the tension and the pressure of their context and these believers going to some other part of the world to share the gospel, and one of their biggest pitfalls was they weren't getting along with each other. I've tried to emphasize the fact that a local church can't function and fulfill their calling and their mission if we, aren't, if we don't love each other the way Christ has loved us. And sometimes that is really hard, isn't it? It's really hard to get along with each other at times. And so in this passage, this is what uh, James is going to talk to us about. When he sent these 200 missionary teams, uh, this man, uh, Paul Ford, when he had sent these, they had sent these 400 missionary teams, they were expecting great things. But he says, this is what he said in his talk, I have learned how individualistic we are. These teams made up of Christians from churches just like yours could not get along. It was not an uncommon experience on, these, on this trip, on this mission that they did in Russia, for Russians to come to our team, that is Christian Russians, to come to our team leaders and say this to them, you have come to bring the gospel, but your people cannot even get along with each other. So it doesn't have much credibility for us to tell people how they can come to be at right in the eyes of God and to be in fellowship with the living God when we can't even get along with each other. That's, that's what he was saying. So I want us to look at this passage, chapter 4, 
And it's all about how serious of a, a problem this is and what's causing it and how we can overcome it. I want to show you, first of all, in, in the first three chapters, the first three verses, rather, uh, he tells us the source of the problem. The source of the problem, he says, is hedonism. Now, you can't see that in English because it's the word behind these conflicts. Listen to this. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? Now, probably all of you have heard the word hedonism, which means a philosophy of life that says the most important thing you can do in life is to get all your pleasures, all your desires for pleasure fulfilled, whatever that is. That's called hedonism, living for pleasure. And, uh, and it comes from this particular Greek word that's translated pleasures. And listen to what he says. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. Lust is the strongest word in the New Testament for desire, to have a craving for something. It overwhelms all the other desires that you have. There was a man in the church many years ago who wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That is, when I'm struggling in life as a Christian, and I am struggling, as Paul describes his own struggle, desiring things that I know are wrong, and they keep getting control of my heart. And so he was talking about with people who are struggling with giving in to destructive pleasures, a pursuit of pleasure, really what's happening is they're practicing a form of idolatry. Ezekiel 14 calls it, the idols of the heart. That is when you desire something so much that it overwhelms all other desires. This is my primary goal in life, is to fulfill this desire. doesn't matter what it is. This is a desire for pleasure. And he says, the problem is, he says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You think, man, that's, that's a little extreme. Is he serious? I mean, I can remember when I first studied this book, and I wondered, I wonder if that's literal, or is that some kind of a, a word that's being used of something else, not really murder, but just hurting somebody's reputation. And so he says, you, you do not have, so you commit murder. Now, the Bible is really clear that when somebody blocks our idol, the idol of our hearts, whatever it is, whatever it is that's most important in our life and this is what we give ourselves to is the pursuit of this. doesn't matter what it is. I don't want to name any because I might hit yours. And I certainly don't want to talk about mine. But the point is, he says, when somebody blocks your pursuit of your pleasure, your hate and hate, the thing that would satisfy you the most, you get really angry. And Jesus says, we're willing to murder people to get them out of the way. And that's really what most... If you, listen, if you listen to stories about murder taking place, it's usually because someone's blocking another person's pursuit of their highest pleasure. Maybe it is that that person wants another, that this husband wants another husband's wife. And so what he's willing to do is to kill his wife and kill her wife. That's crazy stuff, isn't it? But we read about it, we hear about it in our culture, it happens. And Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. That when somebody is blocking my pursuit of what I see as the most pleasurable thing in all of life, I want to eliminate them. I want to get them out of the picture. And so he says, you commit murder, you are envious, and you can't obtain. You want something so bad, but you can't get it because somebody's standing in your way. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
And you, you, when you do ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it or squander it on your own pleasures. In other words, I'm wanting something that God has forbidden me to have. And I want it so bad, I don't want anybody standing in my way. And so people become obstacles in our lives. He goes on to say, you adulteresses. Now, why does he call them adulteresses? This is a mixed group, like, like sitting here today, men and women together. Why would he call them adulteresses? Why didn't he call them adulterers? Well, it's because we are the bride of Christ. And if we set up something else in our heart except Christ that displaces Christ, we are practicing a form of spiritual adultery. And so he calls them this. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Why is that? What is he talking about? Well, the word world, cosmos, is used in Scripture for a very specific thing, and that is a world system that was designed by Satan. This is the way John puts it. Stop loving the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not of God. You can't be loving God and loving the world system at the same time. Now, he's not just talking about, you know, the city and state and nation that we live in. He's talking about a spiritual atmosphere in which Satan is always trying to get us to attach ourselves to the pursuit of something in the place of the pursuit of God. He's not enough, in other words. He won't fill my heart with satisfaction. That's what Satan is trying to lie to people and tell them. Well, hedonism makes us militant. That is, when we're pursuing something and then some people are blocking it. It makes us militant. Uh, we, that's why he uses these terms here. He used three military terms. The word quarrels means war. The word conflicts means individual battles within a war, confrontations. And war is talking about soldiering or strategizing. Why were these believers battling with each other? There were battles going on. Isn't that strange? You probably never experienced that in a lo- local church. I'm being very facetious. There's all kinds of times when we find people within the life of a local church that are like opponents for us. We want to remove them from the scene so they stop blocking our pursuit of what we want. For example, uh, <clears throat> remember the old, uh, home, home on the range with the deer and the antelope play where never is heard a discouraging word? That's all somebody wants from a local church. I just want to go to a church where there is never is heard a discouraging word. I don't want you telling me what I ought to do and what I'm not doing. I want you to tell me an, an encouraging word. Like, you're really wonderful. And let me give you 14 ways that God loves you above all other people. Now, we could do that. He does love you. But the fact is, sometimes I need to be told the truth that I don't want to hear. And sometimes you do too. And he says, because of that, we're ready to go to war with people. And so hedonism makes me uh, militant. Why were these believers battling with each other? What were they battling each other over? Well, the source was their pleasures, their desire for pleasure. There were things that they were not being given, not allowed to have, and they wanted to go to war. The, way, the word that's translated wage war is from our word for strategy or strategizing. And the idea is lying, laying out a strategy for eliminating this block in my path to get what I want. I want this person removed, out of the way, out of my life, out of my sight. 
I'm sure you never feel like that. But most of us do. We, we, we can see that there are certain things that are blocking our way, and so we want to wage war. We strategize. We lay out a strategy of how we can get around who's blocking my way and my pursuit. Actually, the desire may be perfectly normal. Uh, it's a legitimate one. Like it could be a physical, emotional, or social pleasure that we're, we're looking for. How can you tell this desire for pleasure has become an idol of your heart? How can you tell that some pursuit you have, some desire that you always have, is actually an idol of the heart? It's because what does it bring you to when it's blocked? Do you get upset and angry? Are you ready to murder somebody? Are you ready to get somebody out of your life because they're always causing you this problem? Laying out a strategy, getting very angry, even getting ready to kill somebody. And, and figuratively, Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22 equates uh, anger with murder. Jesus said, you've heard it said that you should not murder. But he said, I say to you, if you get angry with someone enough that you want to eliminate them, you've committed murder already in your heart. You want this person out of sight, out of the picture. And so this is what James is, is telling us about. Because your, your flesh keeps telling you that the fulfillment of your desires requires some really important moves that we need to make. We need to get rid of, sort of certain people. You're, you probably would never talk about that, huh, with anybody. Boy, if, it wasn't, if I could just get this person out of my normal everyday life, life would be so much better. <laughs> and, and it's just a fact. We do this. And why do we do it? Because we're fallen. And the flesh, as it's the, the Bible calls it, the flesh is what I am apart from God. It is just my fallen nature. And you know what it's characterized by? It's characterized by selfishness. I want things my way. Boy, it's quiet. I happen to know this is true, and that not because I've talked to anybody, but because I read the Word of God, and it's exactly what it says. And sometimes we, we literally want to get people out of the picture so that we're not put in the same circumstances over and over again where what we're really pursuing is blocked. This reminds me of, of Jesus in the garden. Do you remember what he said when he was in the garden right before the crucifixion? He knows they're coming to arrest him, and so he's praying to the Father. And in the middle of his prayer, he says, Father, if there is any way, or if you are willing, would you remove this cup from me? The cup was a picture of the cross. It was drinking the wrath of God, that is, standing in the place of sinners, being faithful to God to the point that the whole world turned against him. And he said, if there's any way that this could be removed from me. And then he stops right in the middle of his sentence. In fact, this is kind of funny because when you, when you take Greek or, or teach Greek, this is one of the passages you show them about different what's called modes or moods of a, a verb. And that is that he stops himself right in the, sit, in the middle of the sentence and he changes his whole attitude. He says, yet not my will be done, but yours be done. I want your will be done. But wait a minute, if I do God's will, I have to deal with things that I don't like or people that I don't like. This isn't a confession. Uh, I'm just giving you an illustration of some other guy that's kind of like me. Uh, <laughs> it's just the idea. This happens to us all the time. And Jesus 
shows us how we should deal with these things. The next thing he talks about in this passage is the nature of the problem. And he calls it, he basically says it's what it is, the nature of the problem is worldliness. And worldliness is just a manifestation of my selfishness. And my selfishness says, get out of my way. I have something I want, and you're standing in my way. Now, maybe you're thinking, why would he talk about that? This, this is, we are all Christians here. Uh, all the people he's writing to are Christians. This is actually the kind of temptations that we can face. Because some people make it impossible for us to get what we want. You know how that is. You live in a household. And uh, probably the clearest illustration is the relationship of a husband and wife. A husband or a wife wants something really bad, but there's no way that their spouse is going to let it happen. And they become an obstacle. Now, I'm not worried about you murdering your husband or your wife, but, but that's what James is talking about. He says these Christians are constantly asking for this, but they're not receiving. And it's because they're not asking with the right motive. Their motive isn't right. What they're asking is to fulfill their selfish desires, their godless desires. Those desires for things that have nothing to do with my service of, for Christ and his people. That have nothing to do with a selfless attitude. One of the things we're told over and over and over again in the New Testament is that we as the people of God have to love one another the way Christ has loved us. Stop and think about that a second. I'm supposed to love you the way Christ loves you. Christ laid down his life for you. That's the ultimate cost of love. He was willing to let himself be removed from the scene, so to speak. They thought they were eliminating him. Of course, he, he was risen from the dead, and that messed up all their plans. And that's kind of how it is. But think about this, that we are supposed to have that kind of love for each other. So if it puts me out for me to meet your need, the way I can tell that the Spirit is at work in me is I gladly do that. Because you are high on my priority. Because God has given me a love for you the way he loved us. And he was willing to lay down his life. And so we are to be willing to lay down our pursuits in order to meet the needs of others. Um, it's so easy, isn't it, to always give an excuse for not serving somebody because we have something else going on that we have to take care of. And so I'm sorry, I'd like to do that, but I just can't. And the, the point is, is that what Christ has done in sending the Spirit to live in you, he has produced within you a love for fellow believers that breaks down that barrier. You're willing to forego your agenda in order to meet the needs of others. That's how you can tell if the Spirit has been working in your life. That's the sign that you have the Holy Spirit living in you and he is actively engaged in your life. It's not whether or not you can speak some language that you don't know. It's whether or not you love people, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ more than you love yourself. Now, probably if you went to a psychologist, they would tell you, you, you know, you've got a psychological problem here, that you actually love people more than you love yourself. That's not healthy, they would say to you. Jesus says, this is, how I, this is exactly how I carried out the work of redemption. I loved you more than I loved myself. Isn't that amazing? I put your needs before my needs. 
And this is what James is telling them, because what he is seeing in them is a bunch of believers at war with each other, not loving each other, not uh, committing themselves to ministering to one another, but instead at war with each other. And uh, in the Bible it says that we were justified by faith, that is our faith in Christ. We heard the message about Christ from the Father, through the Holy Spirit, and through witnesses, and we believed on the Lord Jesus. And justification or salvation is based on faith. So is sanctification. The word sanctification just means that God, after he saves us, he begins to change us and conform us to the image of Christ. Both of those things are the result of faith, that faith has to be exercised. It takes faith to serve one another, and it's faith in Christ. In other words, who told you you should do that? The Lord Jesus. He told me I should do this. He told me I should love fellow believers more than I love myself, that I should put their needs before my own in given circumstances because they have a, a need that needs to be taken care of right now. And so I'm willing to set aside my agenda to meet that need. That's what he's called us to. And yet what we see is this, all this fighting that's going on among these believers. Now, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but how many of you have seen that? You can just say yes in your own heart. <laughs> You've seen this happen. And in fact, I remember a guy telling me when I first moved to Brentwood and I was a pastor in a, a Baptist church in town. I'd never been a pastor in a Baptist church. And this guy he was telling me, he says, oh yeah, we, he found out I was a pastor. And he said, oh, we used to love to come down to those business meetings and watch them fight. I said, really? He said, yeah, when they'd have a disagreement and all the argument would break out, you know, they just, they'd get at each other's throat. I'm sorry for you people that were in that church. <laughs> and, but that's what I was told. I never saw that among those people. They were a loving group. But I guess some, it was probably some people that had left the church, huh? They weren't there anymore. But here's what James is saying. He is saying that in order for us to fulfill God's calling on our life, we have to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, an even more radical thing is, in order to grow in the Christian life, you have to love your spouse. You have to love them more than you love yourself. That's what he's told us. Through Paul, Paul said this, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I have a great advantage because I got somebody who's really easy to love as a spouse. She just is. She's really easy to love her. And I know some of you have some really difficult people <laughs> to love. But that's what God's called you to do. Because we're in, we have been baptized into the Spirit. And as a result of that, we've been formed into one body. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. When we were in, it's in one Spirit where we all baptized into one body and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. So every believer in the body of Christ has experienced the Holy Spirit working in their life. Now, sometimes we resist it because we're told, stop grieving the Spirit, which is based upon, that's Ephesians 4, and that's based upon the fact that when we start using words as weapons, have you ever used a word, words as weapons when, when you're talking to somebody? The things that you're saying, you want to hurt them a little bit. 
you want to stick the knife in and maybe turn it a little bit? Uh, and Paul says, stop that, because the Holy Spirit, who has sealed you unto the day of redemption, is grieved over that. Why would he be grieved? If you, uh, if you have this attitude towards a fellow believer, why would the Holy Spirit be grieved? Why would he be grieved over the fact you using words as weapons to tear someone down? Well, he bought you both, and he sealed you in Christ for the day of redemption. It's his work. And so he wants us to use words to build up and to encourage and to inform and to help. He says the same kind of thing in, in 1 Thessalonians when he says, uh, stop quenching the Holy Spirit. What he means by that is, don't try to stand in the way of the work of the Spirit in people's lives. One of the breakthrough truths that I can remember coming to see in the Word of God that just really shook me was, every single believer has the Holy Spirit. Because I'd always been taught you had to seek God with all your heart before you'd ever receive the Spirit. But what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 9 and elsewhere, Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, and elsewhere, he says, you couldn't be saved without the Holy Spirit. He gave you the Spirit. And he says, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. In fact, the terms that are used to describe Christians and non-Christians is this, that the Christian is a spiritual man or woman and that the unbeliever is a soulish man or woman. That is, they have not received the Spirit that gives them life in Christ Jesus. And so the, the, the Bible clearly tells us, hey, this is serious stuff for you to go to war against believers. Sometimes they're very easy targets, aren't they? They're the easiest targets because they typically won't fight you back. But we are told that we should resist this, that we should not do this. We shouldn't treat one another as enemies. We shouldn't make it our goal is to strike and hurt one another. In other words, we need to be at peace with each other. At peace with each other. No, I, I want you to get this, that God wants you to understand that he will empower you, that the Spirit lives in you to empower you to do this, to love fellow believers, to love them to forgive them for their offenses and to, to love them and to help them and to minister to them. This is where it starts. Now, ultimately, we want to get to the place where we function as servants of Christ in the world, people that don't know Christ. But if we can't start with ourselves, I can tell you they won't listen to us with any seriousness whatsoever. If, we, if all we have is we got, got a bunch of enemies that are Christians, yeah, I'm real familiar with Christianity. I'm a Christian. I, I got all these friends that I don't like that are Christians. <laughs> and what he has called me to do, and you to do, is to love your brother and sister in Christ and to be willing and to be able to be teammates, to be on mission for Jesus Christ and to love people. There's nothing like being with a small group of people for a non-believer to be in the, group, in the midst of a group of Christians who actually love each other. And so when they start telling them about the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, that the Father sent him in the world to save people, and that he died in their place, he was willing to give up his own life to stay faithful to God to the point that he was put to death by the enemies of God. That's what God's like. That's what Jesus is like. And so what we've been called to do is, first of all, love one another. And secondly, 
stay engaged in the mission we're on, which is to make disciples in all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, which means, that phrase means, bring them to have such confidence in Christ that they want to be identified with him, that they come to believe on him as a Savior and Lord and King, and they're baptized in his name to identify with him, and then teach them how to obey all his commandments. Sometimes I don't think we get that uh, when it says, when Jesus told the disciples, he says, uh, you, you make disciples of all nations by bringing them a place of bab- being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teach them how to obey all my commandments. It's much easier for me to say to you, well, you should do this and this and this and this. I give you a list of 20 things. This is what you do. But what I have to do to make disciples, I have to show you by example what it means to obey Christ. What does it mean to obey my enemies? That's why it's wonderful to have a wife who knows the Lord because she can tell you when you're not, you're a horrible example. (laughs) And it's true, isn't it? How do we love people? Can you show another person how to obey the commands of Christ? Can you show them how to, to have a relationship with Christ, to walk with him, to walk in the spirit, to rest in Christ, and to stay in the love of God? Do you know how to, to show them how? Could you say with Paul, follow me as I follow Christ? Well, one of the things you would have to do is to forgive people who've offended you. You would have to forgive brothers and sisters in Christ who have not acted the way they should have, and you are holding a grudge. You have to forgive them. And that's why Jesus said, if a brother sins, rebuke him. That means tell him the truth. What you've just done is wrong. And if he repents, forgive him. Set him free from that and forgive him. That's where you start. So I just want to make it clear from this passage that we have to be, brothers and, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to be a forgiving people who are yoked together because of our love for each other, because of what Christ has done for us. I haven't seen Mike in a couple of weeks. He's got a new haircut. And uh, I've known Mike since we were in seminary. And uh, that's been a lot of years. I don't know how many years that's been, but it's probably been 1968. <laughs> there, was a, there was a year called 1968. Some of you don't know about it. But I've watched him for all these years. I've watched him go through all kinds of trials, face all kinds of things, and he's never stopped loving God's people, ever. And it amazes me sometimes. Sometimes I'm really stretched. It's like, this guy knows how to love people. He knows how to forgive. He knows how to pray for people. And this is what God wants of us all. He wants us to be people who love each other, and when people are in our midst together, they're going to say they really believe that stuff, don't they? God really has done something in our life. Look at that. They love one another. They care for one another. We, uh, we, we reach out to people. We encourage people. We teach people when they don't understand something about the gospel and its implications. We're not afraid to speak up. Now, we need to learn something, obviously. If all you're doing is spouting off error and things that aren't really true, that's not a help. But in the power of the Spirit, as the Spirit empowers you to learn his word 
And that's a great motivation to learn the Word of God, is God can equip you to be an instrument in His hands to minister to people. Uh, I actually had this experience in a church where I, I became a pastor in this church, and probably the first week this guy came to my office, and he started telling me all the problems that everybody had and what was wrong with them. And I said, hey, wait, 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 wait. I don't want to hear this. He goes, hey, you need to hear this. You need to know what these people are really like. And I said, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't, I don't want you to talk to me anymore. And what had happened was this guy had fallen into deep sin, and the people didn't put their arm around him and say, hey, good job, man. Just keep on sinning. Because they didn't say that. He thought they, weren't, they, they were the horrible people. Well, it was really quick to see he didn't understand the gospel at all. And what God's done for us is he's given us the capacity to love each other. It's called the Holy Spirit. He's come to live within us. The, the proof that you have the Holy Spirit is you love God's people. That's one of the greatest truths. You're willing to lay down your life for fellow believers. You're ready, you're, you are willing to help them and to encourage them, to give them what you can give them in order for them to grow and function as an effective instrument in the Redeemer's hands. So this week, would you think about this? You can read this passage over and over again, the passage you heard Tony read this morning. One of the most blessed things God says in that psalm, one of the most blessed things about life is seeing brothers in, in Christ who know God, who love each other. So if you, I want to tell you what Jesus would tell you. Because this is what Jesus said. There were some people he was talking to, and they were going to go and offer a sacrifice at the temple. And he says, well, let me explain something to you. When you go to the temple and offer a sacrifice, if while you're doing this, you're in the process of this, you remember somebody who's offended at you. You have, you have done something to offend them. Here's what you have to do. Stop, wait, and tell them you'll be back, and you go to that person and you ask their forgiveness. And you reconcile with them. And then you go back and offer your sacrifice. Well, now that we're in the new covenant, we're supposed to do the same thing, only we don't offer sacrifices. The ultimate sacrifice has been offered. But we need to see the responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes I understand we can get a grudge against somebody because they have failed to do something they should have done. Or they've done something they shouldn't have done. They said something that we took a great offense at. You need to reconcile. That reconciliation may be, first of all, to say, I need to be honest with you. What you said to me in that situation was so offensive and it so threw me that I've tried to avoid you and I want your forgiveness. And you know what you'll get? You'll get a person asking you for forgiveness because we all sin in all kinds of ways and we saw last week the person who can control his tongue is a mature person. <laughs> a mature person. If you don't the biggest, the biggest challenge of preaching is not putting your foot in your mouth. It's so hard not to. I once got confronted just about six, eight months ago with an email. A lady wrote me and sent me an email and said, you know what you did? It was in a public thing. I just made some wisecrack about somebody. And, uh, and I was, we, him and I were joking with each other. And I said something just trying to be humorous. And she confronted me and said, that was wrong. You need to ask his forgiveness. And I said, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Thank you for telling me that. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Because sometimes, have you noticed this, how that uh, you can't see the log in your eye when you see the speck in your brother's eye? 
That's what Jesus says. He says, this, this is what happens. We see the speck in our neighbor's eye, but we are totally blind to the log that's in our own eye. Uh, I remember a young man at Valley Bible Church, he called that uh, log jamitis. You've got a log jam in your eye. You are so blind to your weaknesses and your offenses, but you see what's wrong with everybody else. Well, I'm glad when you see something, but give me a break. Give me a few hours before you tell me, but you feel free to talk to me. Point out to me if I have been offensive, if I have, if I have said something that was offensive and I didn't even recognize it. I want to hear it. I want to know. Because I want to walk in the power of the Spirit. I want to walk in obedience to Christ. And I want to love his people. He's called us to love each other. And maybe you're new and maybe you, you just, you don't even know how you could possibly do that. You know, I don't even know how to love people. Well, the Word of God is very instructive on that. It tells you how to love your brother and sister in Christ. And the instructions are very clear. And all you got to do is start looking and you'll find it. Or ask one of us, because we've all had so much experience at this. Would you stand with me? Our Father, uh, we are grateful for your loving kindness towards us. We are grateful, Father, that your love for us is totally mysterious to us. We, since we've come to have a relationship with you, we have, we have been forgiven in ways that we just can't even understand. That you forgive us. And we have come to understand that it is based upon what your son has done for us. That he has stood our, taken our place, stood in our place, and he has fulfilled all righteousness in our place, Father. We are grateful for that. So we pray now, as we sing this final song, we pray that we'd sing it as praise unto you, to glorify you, Father. And help us to love each other. I pray that there would be many conversations this week if we see ways in which we have failed to love a brother or sister in Christ. Help us be quick, Father, to ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness. We thank you so much for the, your word, the word of God, for the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes and our understanding, Father. We pray you do a good work in our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.